0: Hey there, Japanese garden enthusiasts, and welcome to the official podcast of the North American Japanese Garden Association. I'm your host, Shayna Price. Join me as I have conversations with experts and enthusiasts alike about the art, craft, and heart of Japanese garden design. NAJGA is the number one resource for all things Japanese garden related in the English language. Our episodes are unscripted and casual, as well as easy to listen to when you're up in a tree pruning pines or even working along a garden path to prepare for a cultural event. So just pop in your headphones and enjoy these conversations with me. Shayna here with the official Najka podcast, and this month we are featuring dry gardens as our topic of the month. I will be having Heather Grisbeck on from the Murakami Museum and Japanese Gardens today to talk to us about sharing dry gardens or kare san sui with the West just to help people embrace the whole world of dry gardens and expand their perspectives. Heather, so happy to have you on. Could you give us a little more information about yourself so we can uh, get acquainted with you? Sure. Uh, my name is Heather
1: Grisbeck. I am the garden curator at the Murakami Museum and Japanese Gardens. I got a Bachelor's of Science in Parks and Recreation from West Virginia University. I moved down to Florida following my graduation, and I think like most graduates, worked in the restaurant business <laughs> So I could pay bills and do all that fun stuff until I found that, that job. And I answered a tiny little ad in the newspaper, and it just said for Landscape Pruner. I had worked in garden centers and things originally from New Jersey. I had worked for a landscape company as well, just regular Western-style gardening up north in Jersey, and answered this tiny little ad in Florida in 2000, no, it was like 99, 99, 2000 or so, a tiny little ad, and it was for Landscape Pruner, and it just so happened to be for Krisu International. I sat down with uh, Hoichi Krisu, who designed the garden. And I was hired on as a landscape pruner. Interestingly enough, when I sat down with him, he looked at me and here I was like, what, 21 years old. (laughs) And he said, where do you want to be in five years? And I was like, I have no idea (laughs) that. It was really interesting So the set and series of questions that he had asked me to try and understand my level of commitment. It was a, this is a very different experience, very different job a lot of hard work, and, you know, he took a chance on me. It was really interesting. And I uh, worked for him, his company, for a couple of years and then took on a position with Palm Beach County Parks and Recreation as the head gardener of the group. And later on, I left the Morkami and I went to Mounts Botanical Garden and was awarded the horticultural supervisor position there. Just when I left to go there, we had just experienced a major hurricane. And it was my first. Uh, that really did some damage in Palm Beach County. So I was at Mounts, putting Mounts back together. And then a couple of years later, I ended up coming back to the Murakami. I think it just was just the time and the energy and the love I really had for the garden that drew me back there. Moved into a position that was known as the resource development supervisor. So I was all over the gardens and maintenance. Later, the position of garden curator was created and I was
0: awarded that. So that's where I am now. That's great to get your background. I am curious about how your experience has been with the dry garden there. I don't really know the history of the dry garden there, but how have you been involved with it and just maybe some of your background as far as the dry garden goes?
1: Sure. Our Karen Sensui is the late rock garden. And the late rock garden is loosely uh, modeled after Royanji, kind of, um, you know, surrounded by the kind of yellowish kind of walls. We don't have 15 rocks, but we have a few of us. Um, but, you know, it's it kind of loosely, you know, kind of designed following that. Now, our garden is a little bit different than most gardens in, in the U.S. and probably internationally as well. We kind of lovingly call it a more modern take. We're a contemporary tank on a Japanese garden. So we're not traditional. We're in South Florida. (laughs) We just really can't be that. We use a lot of tropical ornamentals that mimic plant material that would, you would find up north. Whether it was chosen for your trunk structure or its fine leaf structure or what have you. But at Hoichi when he was designing this garden, it was, it was coming around the end of the millennium. And uh, he had always, you know, very passionate about how gardens had changed throughout history. And what the people really needed to get out of gardens, depending on what was going on. And so he really looked at this garden and he thought, we're going to enclose it. And he was like, it's really the millennium. You really need to think outside of the box and, and break down walls. And, and that's literally what he did. So if you sit at the vantage point on one of the benches and, and look, the left third of the garden is still enclosed, We're surrounded by a ficus kind of mountain hedge that we've got pruned. But there's boulders on that left side where he literally broke a wall. It's still enclosed and it gives that nice kind of secluded feeling. But it, it's it's just got a little different thought to it. So very cool. I've been, uh, you know, involved in in the care of that garden since the beginning. And I remember when I had first started working for Hoichi. You know, you just were obsessing over every single line and you wanted it to be perfect. And you know that that garden would take me quite. Quite an amount of time, (laughs) but over the years, obviously, it's gotten much easier, and and still, I think uh, you know one of my favorite jobs to do for sure.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting too that you were able to be there from the beginning. I'm curious how you have been able to see people from the beginning of when you started seeing people coming and enjoying the gravel and the patterns and the stones and that whole area that you guys created throughout all these years until now have you found a certain way to help people enjoy that as more of an art form or to see it as more than just like some patterns and some gravel? What, what's your take on that as far as helping people kind of expand their perspective with the the carisade? You know, from my perspective
1: as the garden curator, you know, I, I hold a lot
0: of information
1: in my, you know, being. And one of my favorite things to do is impart that information on others. Because that pop culture had really, you know, made these small littles and gardens that people are like, oh, this is so cute, and then the sand goes everywhere, and they get tired of it, and they get rid of it, or, or do whatever, or they think of a bonsai, right? Like, oh, I'm going to get bonsai as a gift to somebody, and then they don't know how to take care of it, and then they feel terrible, and what have? You. What I really like to do in my cultural demonstrations, rock garden raking demonstrations, is really just talk about the garden I talk about the design and why it's different why it's not a traditional it's more of this contemporary interpretation of one and they don't know what they don't know and until you really give them that information it's hard for them to really not understand and just look at this area to them that just looks like a dead end and they go oh there's just a bunch of rocks there and they don't really get it I'm always looking to share that information with them And garden tours is hopefully so that they can learn and and understand and then
0: impart it on others. So when you are explaining, for example, trying to help people understand what they don't understand, like you said, what do you feel like are the most difficult parts for them to come to appreciate about dry gardens?
1: Yeah, it's Japanese gardens still have this kind of this mystique to them, right? Because you can Google how to design a Japanese garden, but it's hard to research because most of it isn't really written down in a kind of Western style. So we know there was a manual that was written called the Sakotaki, but, and I've read it, but it's an interpreted version of an English version of it. And it's really interesting because it, it tells you a lot of what not to do, but it doesn't really tell you, or when it does tell you what to do, it, it doesn't make sense. It's a lot of what, you know, what we explain as tacit knowledge or it's something just intrinsically, you know, right? So it's kind of left to this personal interpretation. So somebody can say, oh, I want to make a Zen garden. I want to make a rock garden in my yard, right? And they might say, how do I do that? Oh, it's I just put a couple, you know, boulders around and, and you know, add some gravel and then I'll try and make a rake, but they don't really get it. So I think that's always a struggle because, you know, people are thirsting for that information, but maybe they don't exactly know how to get to it. The other little bit of confusing part is they know there might be some sort of Zen or some religious connotation to it. Right. Is it Shinto? Is it Buddhism? Which is it? Right. The lay person maybe doesn't necessarily know the difference. So how Buddhism came from one place and moved through and got to Japan and whatever. But that didn't happen until the end of the 12th century. So it's relatively new. And then, of course, it was popularized by the samurai, right? And people like, samurai, you know, they're so awesome. They've got, you know, all their their cool armor and what have you. But they don't really understand why it was popularized. You know, why it was so interesting to the samurai because of that very disciplined style of life and and how that kind of self-discipline principle really came about and played as a key role in the Japanese arts. All of this is just things they just don't know until somebody shares this with them, right? Also that kind of, there's devoid the of plants. There may be a feeling that there's nothing really to see. Oh, it's just a bunch of boulders or what have you. But if they just sit down and just silence the phone, just take a minute, they'll feel it, which I think is what is that respective space, right? That negative space, that mob. I think that less clutter, less busyness can just quiet the mind and and quiet the soul if you just stop. I think that that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that sense of quiet and that sense of peace.
0: Yeah. I think once you know a few things, it can be really easy to start to see and enjoy what that evokes and feel it fully so it does quiet you down and you could sit there for half an hour or an hour but at first when you first see something like that there's not that like that aha moment very easily even though you are somewhat moved by something but you're just not sure what it is when you can put your finger on a little more sometimes it helps you enjoy it a little bit deeper i also want to ask you then moving on to something more specific to us being in the states and especially in florida what are some of the most challenging parts of keeping up with and raking a dry garden in the US? I'm talking like tools, climate, material, what we have here versus Japan. I know there's a lot of specific tools for karesansui. Obviously, you have to learn to rake patterns and how all that works, and it's not really heavy on the plants. So, I'm just curious on the technical side if there's any good advice you could give anyone who is currently trying to either create a dry garden or is just curious to know more about how to adapt it for the U.S. or Florida specifically?
1: Sure. You know, ours, we have two. We have one flat garden and we have the late rock garden. So, you know, the late rock garden I think is what we're focusing on, but uh, the flat garden just has a little bit more plants to it. It's, it, it uses the idea of or or borrowed scenery. So we have a nice hedge of azaleas and then the forefront is more of the rock garden but it's got a different purpose to it either way the gravel that we use is called granite chips and we are very fortunate to have a nearby supplier (laughs) Um, but it is costly Um, but it has the right look to it it's a light gray kind of granite chip that has a kind of nice sparkle to it so picks up the sun quite nicely you know the tools and all we they're pretty simple it's just a leaf rake and you know the rock garden rake and and just before i got in this call i was like and where do people get these and they actually do have them on amazon which i think is hilarious um we've always made ours in-house you know so uh but uh raking is it's a process it takes time and it takes patience and that's really where you get that meditation or that zaza and i think you know the process of the raking and the doing it the right way um you know, gives a whole different experience than just, oh, I just have to hurry up and make the pattern and make it look nice for today or what have you. So, so, um, you know, for us, weather is a huge, huge factor. So it doesn't just sprinkle here. (laughs) It is like a deluge. And with that brings wind and and the rain and all that just brings debris. And, you know, the pounding rain just like squashes
0: a pattern. So It's it's definitely a struggle for us down here. So about the tools, I have another question. Since you said you can find it on Amazon, if people did want to make their own, for example, Mm -hmm. or if they're just curious about how you make your own, um, I'm curious how you make it, what you usually make it out of, and how often you have to replace it, if there's any good advice you could give anyone, and what's your experience like with that?
1: The rake itself. We make in-house, like I said, and and it's just usually like a kind of block of kind of a sturdy type of wood. And then we make the teeth. Ours are probably about an inch and a half to two inches. And that cut in and then we just have a big kind of bamboo handle that we attach to it. But we actually put a little piece of metal on top of it as well, just to add as a little extra piece of kind of weight to it to weight that head down just a little bit. But I still press on it a bit just to make the grooves nice and um, showy for that pattern but you still don't want it to be so heavy that you can't it
0: what about walking I know a lot of people have the question about how to rake the patterns without destroying them since you're also walking on top of them or some of the patterns especially like some may be easier but others they're quite they run into each other so you would <laughs> have to walk on it to get out of it how do you do that and what's your experience like with that
1: I learned by Hoichi. Hoichi uh, Kresu was the one who showed me and instructed me on what to do. And we, we flipped between two different patterns. So it's, they're very simple. They're very plain. The simpler, the better. But we build one line and then put the last tooth or two. Hoichi always said if he, you would do two teeth, that's like training wheels. And then you weld them off of that one line. But when one direction, you get all the way to the one edge and then you come around and finish the other. The secret of not getting the footprints in, right? That's what everybody wants to know. And I tend to keep my feet very behind the head of the rake. You have to watch where your hips are going. If your hips are swinging out, then so are your feet. So it's a, something I do during my, my presentations to people. And they're always like, how are you going to get out of there? You know, and you have to bend third way and jump out and then show them how you can cover up those footprints. You know, with a just a quick pull of the rake, and then all the way around the border is you know how you you know finish off all those raw edges.
0: Yeah, I know that we both know each other from G for P, but uh, for those that don't know, Gardens for Peace um, is a NADGA event that is very heavily involved with dry gardens because it's a pattern that we rake into the garden. For those that don't know, it's the pattern that. Was made by an A bomb survivor. It's to be representative of peace and it's an artistic interpretation of the hiragana for the word heiwa, which means peace. And I saw so many different gardens across North America putting it into their dry gardens in all kinds of creative ways because it doesn't always just fit because you've got all of these larger stones you have to work around. So I'm curious how that worked for you. I kept it really simple. So our condensate
1: and is large. It's pretty big. And I do have three main stones on the, the right third of it. So I was able to make that kind of circular, you know, around two of the rocks and then a really nice, long, curvy kind of swath. And then with the, the two little accent pieces on either side. And I really, I didn't do anything else. And I have not wow. changed that since I have done G for P because right. there are a couple different
0: ways that you can do it. And I'm like,
1: you know what? I'm like, no,
0: that's it. That's the one. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I've seen it before, and I didn't know if that took some figuring out. But it it sounds like it was almost like it was custom made for your dry garden. It was funny. I yeah. really
1: was the first time I did it. I was like. I've got the space and it can literally see
0: the whole thing in that. I was like, OK, well, there we go. Yeah, yeah. It was really I know some gardens, they were really having to get creative for how to fit it around their stones or they had a really small garden. So they were trying to fit all of the the most important pieces so that it still resembled it and it didn't get too abstracted away or something. So that's cool. But yeah, I guess we can talk on that really quick. As far as like an unconventional usage of dry gardens, like your garden has per- participated in gardens for peace and a lot of other gardens who have karesansui, and then gardens who don't even have karesansui have have participated with all kinds of activities for peace. Yeah. But I I'm curious about you've been a part of your dry garden and seeing and explaining it to the guests for so many years in a certain way, but then having them be able to Part, kind of have more of a participatory uh, interaction with the dry garden and see you using it in an unconventional way like how do you think it still connects to the heart of a kare san even though it's not conventional yeah
1: it was funny so i knew martin and i when i first received a call from him about the gardens for peace project i'm not gonna lie i was skeptical <laughs> i remember when the Najgo conference was hold, held at the morkami and martin presented I believe he presented on the project Tarn, And I just remember thinking of what a peaceful man he was and what kindness he was really ready to offer. But I remember going, it is an an unconventional way. I recall conversations with Hoiti when I was first learning about Kan Sensui and, and raking it and what have you. And I remember him talking to me about patterns and why you were always referring back to the designer's vision. To make sure you were following it. Because if you're not doing that, then if the pattern was too busy or it wasn't quite right, it would look like a kindergartner kind of playing in the sand. It wasn't quite the consensui. So I was having a hard time kind of understanding. Wait a minute, I was two opposing kind of things. And I didn't know how the two would really go together just because they were opposing. And until the idea really of using the consensui just for that purpose or just for that reason, maybe just for gardens for peace, it was okay. And it I love the way that it's banded together. All these we had, I think a few years ago we had 14, and now we're up to 27. Gardens like participating in this message of peace and using a garden, you know, to to do. I think Martin was probably the perfect person to really make that connection for me, for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think, you know, I can't say how touching it's been to see your dry garden and then all the dry gardens across yeah. North America with this same pattern, the same sentence of hewa or peace raked into their gardens for just one day. Like you're saying, it's this very special thing. So it's like a one day or a one week thing, depending on the event at the garden. But private gardens, public gardens, everybody can participate, anyone who has one. And then people also just doing like calligraphy or origami uh-huh. or any other kind of thing inspired by peace all together as one sort of voice using the garden that way is just so beautiful and touching. So I, I think it's amazing and it is a really unconventional way. But on that, going off into a little bit more of a general idea about the heart of a dry garden, there's, like you said, so many ways to interpret art in general. So people might not think that just some raked gravel is art, but it really is more of like an artistic expression because, you know, you're, of course, you're taking and you're creating a landscape or a garden, not from plants. yeah. (laughs) And so it is like an artistic representation of plants and landscapes that would normally be green and growing and now it's gravel and stone. So what do you think is at the heart of dry gardens, and how have you experienced it at dry gardens outside of Japan, so in inside of the North American or Western gardens or European gardens? So for me, I think
1: the, the true heart of a dry garden is it's so exemplary of the Japanese aesthetic. It's got everything, right? And So it's got simplicity, it's got elegance, it's got restriction, and it's got like a negative space feel to it. And those things that I just mentioned are at the heart of the Japanese aesthetic. I feel like the combination or the recognition of all these things in one space can just make this profound effect on the soul, on the spirit, whatever you want to call it. But I think also because the true meaning of a Japanese garden or a karesansui isn't made super clear, right? So it's more up to the viewer to find their own meaning as they look at it. But there there isn't a lot. There's no big splashes of color. There it's just got this once this once again, simplicity and elegance, restriction. I can do a million things in this space, but I didn't. And to find the beauty in that, it it's like a deep breast in a chaotic world. So it's just they're not being overly stimulated by, like a botanical garden is very different. It has a very different purpose, right? Gardens down here are very tropical, right? So they big, giant flowers, these big, giant leaves, and they're very thick and robust and beautiful. This is just a whole different, what's like stripping it down, but finding the beauty in the stump, right? Finding find the beauty in the shadowing of the trees nearby or, or what have you. That just gives you a different feeling in it. When I was in Kyoto, I was able to visit the Rianji Temple. And when I was there, it all made sense because here I had been told, here I am sitting there professing to visitors and guests and, and what have you about our garden, how it's loosely modeled after Rianji. And I just got there. And just, I got it. It made so much more sense. To see that the age of the walls and and the placement of the boulders and the longevity was just all there. So I think when I returned to the Murakami, um, it made my understanding of our garden so much more impactful. And trust me, when I was in Kyoto, it was hot, I was sweaty. But at that moment, you just were like, it's like I had made this journey when I had finally gotten there and it, it just was amazing. So I think that, you know, continuing to have gardens make those impacts to to people in the U.S. is maybe they can't get to Japan, but you know, we we say the Murakami, you know, uh, know, trip to Japan without the, you know, passport.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, that's awesome um, to hear about the heart. And I do think that it's such a privilege to be able to share the heart of dry gardens let people see and experience it for themselves like in the public space. It's really cool. I guess the last thing I would kind of want to know is your favorite, your like favorite experience or favorite time, your own personal experience in there. Have you had any really special experience? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, typically when you're raking the
1: rock garden, it's early morning, you know, and it's before... Any of the, the, the people show up and change the vibe of the garden a little bit. but in, And, you know, raking the rock garden is is best in, in Florida, South Florida, to do the first thing. Otherwise, you're in the kind of easy bake oven. And it's hot and you can't see. You're sweating and it's, it comes a little problematic. So it's really nice to do the first thing in the morning. And it's quiet out west in, in Florida. East is busy and a lot of people and, and what have you. So we're off the beaten path a little bit. And we just there's some beautiful pond cypress that just glisten with the dew early morning. And hence our the gardens actually go GN, which is the garden of yeah. the drops of dew. And so you got that happening and then got this the shishidoshi kind of making its lovely clack sound. And so here you are, you're raking or whatever. And I remember this one morning. As where I was explaining it, that the kind of left third of the garden is like boulders, rubble, broken wall, if you will, and there's a hedge that's still all the way around it, and we put it into an, a mountain-shaped ficus. And I it was just enjoying my moment and raking the garden, listening to the, the gravel crunches. i been walking and, and pulling the rake and just enjoying my time or what have you. And and twin bobcats chats just kind oh. of stuck their head out and just walked right and i froze and them. they just kind of like looked at me just for a second and and then they walked out and you know went disappeared behind the bushes and I was like, that is the coolest thing that's ever happened. What
0: a cool favorite memory, favorite experience. (laughs) Sometimes the interactions with nature that you get when you're gardening. I think you guys are in a really large space as well. So I'm sure you get even more nature coming in. Yeah, we've got about 16 acres. Oh, that's that's really big. So yeah, (laughs) I'm sure you see a lot of nature, but that's a crazy interaction. (laughs) Well, it's been so good talking with you, Heather. And thank you. I feel like I know a lot more now and just thank you so much for all your time and all your insight thank you my pleasure okay talk again soon to further your journey into the world of japanese garden design be sure to visit our website at www.najga.org that's najga.org there you'll find an abundance of resources articles blogs information that can quench your curiosity about japanese garden design For inspiration and connection with the Japanese garden community online, you can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, actively posting and sharing content from member gardens. Don't miss out on our email newsletters either. Subscribe to those to stay in the loop and get tons of insights, updates, and exclusive content of course more than anything it's important to become a member of NAJGA so you can support the community and also have the community support you keep fostering the art craft and heart of japanese garden design in north america with us and until next time happy japanese gardening